Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, hey. So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Maggie Howell. She's the executive director of the Wolf Conservation Center. So this one was a really exciting one for me, um, mainly because I've always had a pretty big fascination with wolves, um, as long as I can remember. Uh, they are deeply embedded in American culture, woven into the fabric of this country, um, you know, in so many different ways, pretty much a sign of American abundance before you know, settlers came and really hunted them off. Um, but they were apex predators roaming around in North America and Canada and Alaska, um, really, really dominating the, uh, the entire landscape. Then when settlers came, they were a sign of, uh, you know, I guess our, our greed, our gluttony. Um, and they really saw the wrath, um, of settlers who did, practically shoot them to extinction and in some cases to being extinct in the wild. Uh, from there, there was a sign of American ingenuity, uh, really showing how if we want to, as a country, we can come together and protect and save a species from completely being wiped off the face of the earth through breeding uh, programs and advocacy and awareness programs and really getting behind one of our incredible keystone species that really is part of the backbone of America. And I guess at this point, they're a symbol of American resilience, surviving despite really all odds, um, legislation and um, people not wanting them in their area and uh, encroachment of property onto their uh, onto their land. So just showing that these wolves can exist and can survive and can thrive in this country and beyond if we actually give them a chance, if we actually allow them to do so. So this one goes out to all the wolf nerds out there who wore wolf t-shirts uh, in middle school and maybe even in high school. Um, you know who you are. I'm one of you. <laughs> I'm part of your wolf pack. Um, yeah, and I hope you enjoy this podcast, uh, and especially this episode. I think it's a really incredible one, very timely. Uh, Maggie was very gracious with her time and, um, you know, really set the record straight on a lot of things about wolves and also setting some hope out there that they can survive and they can thrive um, if we choose to let them. So, as always, uh, please like, rate, review. I don't even know all the things you can do, but whatever you can do for this podcast, please do it. Um, it helps a tremendous amount. Um, and yeah, I hope you enjoy. I know you will. All right. Thanks. All right. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Maggie Howell. Maggie has been with the Wolf Conservation Center since about 2005 helping with wolf education, recovery, and advocacy. So thanks for chatting with me, Maggie. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited for this one. Um, 
So the Wolf Conservation Center started in 1999. How many different wolves, you know, first, how many wolves have you seen and how many different types of wolves do you guys have in your enclosure and do you help on a daily basis? Sure. Um, so right now we are currently home to 42 wolves. Um, and that's a, a new number as of, gosh, yesterday, <laughs> actually. Oh, wow. um, and we have three different kinds of wolves. Um, our, uh, the wolves that are, are primarily our wolves that are helping us educate people uh, are called our ambassador wolves. And these are pretty much just generic gray wolves. Uh, they were born in captivity, and um, and that's where they'll remain. Mm -hmm. um, the other wolves that we ho uh, house are the critically endangered Mexican gray wolf, right. and the critically endangered red wolf. And um, and these wolves we have um, as a participant in the species survival plan, um, which is a uh, a program um, in a collaboration with state wildlife agencies, federal wildlife agencies. Um, many different uh, zoos across the country or even in Mexico for the Mexican gray wolf. Um, other organizations a little bit more like us um, who are not zoos. Um, and we really work to uh, um, raise awareness for wolves, uh, breed wolves in captivity, carefully manage breeding for genetic health and recommendations for release. Um, and currently we have, I have to think of the numbers now I have to get it right. Um, 18, because this is the new number, 18 red wolves, um, wow. and wow. yeah, and, um, and 21 Mexican gray wolves, and we have our three ambassadors. So the reason those numbers are dynamic as of yesterday is we actually just transferred two of our red wolves to a different facility, um, and that is a facility that now will have these red wolves, hopefully teach people about uh, the red wolves and their care and hopefully make really good advocates out of them. Hmm. So is that the process that a lot of wolves come from, um, you know, WCC and then go to other, um, go to other areas where they then become advocates there? Um, it's actually, it's, it's both ways. Okay. So um, all of the Mexican gray wolves and um, red wolves are owned by the federal government, which means actually they're owned by every citizen in the United States. Um, so congratulations if you That's want awesome. a wolf, you got one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, owned is such an ugly word when you're thinking about wildlife. Um, right. They really are owned, you know, by themselves and their families mm -hmm. and their parents. Um, but, uh, but so when we are housing these animals, in a sense, all of the participants, all of the different facilities are like in-kind donors where they're caring for the animals, feeding the animals, um, you know, everything that comes with keeping a wolf at your, you know, office, <laughs> then, uh, um, and, and also raising awareness for them. And, uh, and that way you're just a participant to help in this recovery. So there's no federal funding for housing them or anything. Um, it's really just an honor to be a part of this, this process and recovery. Yeah, it sounds like, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but, um, you know, it's probably a pretty big honor seeing as how there's almost as much, if not more red wolves in your enclosure than there are in the wild. Yeah, so yeah, that, that number is low and with our current population of 18, uh, that makes us a, a pretty big population in our yeah. country. Yeah, and so really how it works at our center, so I didn't really answer a question before, I just realized, is <laughs> we're so constantly far. shifting wolves from different facilities that participate 
whether it's, um, you know, we want to welcome as many new participants. Um, so as many organizations that can house them and really help support this um, is great. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a new facility um, and they're going to have these um, two red wolves uh, who are not born in our facility, but arrived um, a few years ago. Their names, uh, they have alphanumeric names, but I prefer to use their um, nicknames that we give them. Um, and their names are um, uh, Gilda and uh, Penny <laughs> and uh, their sisters. And, um, and so hopefully they're going to really leave an impact on that community um, where they now belong. Uh, so we get wolves, we leave wolves. Often when, when wolves are coming to a different facility, it's for breeding purposes. Uh, in this case, it was a new facility, wanted right. to open that chapter for them. And also we had a, a pretty large multi-generational um, red wolf family in the, their enclosure. And so although we do have large enclosures at um, the wolf center, um, you know, the average is about two acres, which is, you know, nothing compared to the wild, yeah. um, per family, but, uh, in captivity, it's actually a pretty decent size. Um, but still, you know, when you have a larger multi-generational family, it's, it's, it's usually not sustainable for more than just a few years. They're going to start to bicker, um, just like, you know, we would as well. Oh, interesting. So what's the process like, like? You know, how long do they stay at each enclosure and how do you determine which ones leave? And then and then when they do get released, how does that work? Yeah. So um, so basically right now, each in each family has its own enclosure. Um, so each pack, basically a, a wolf pack is simply a wolf family. So mom, dad, offspring of different ages. And um, so we currently have, um, I think, 10 enclosures. I just have to count it. Um, and uh, and so. Uh, in this case, with the new facility, um, we stepped up to offer these two wolves because there was a bit of that intra-pack strife. Um, mm -hmm. We were seeing them bicker a little bit, and that's probably just because, you know, in a normal wolf family, just like in our families, once you reach a certain age, you're probably going to want to head off and start your own family. What age is that? be independent. Right? Yeah. Um, for wolves, um, it could be two to three years old is usually when it would begin. Okay. Um, and uh, it could be male or female. And, uh, and so, um, but when we have them, you know, confined, obviously they don't have that, that choice to make. Mm -hmm. um, so we always have to keep very careful watch just on their behaviors, on their, their dynamic, uh, because wolves are just not, you know, meant for captivity like any animal. Um, so we try to accommodate them as best we can, uh, but we have to be aware of just the fact that these are very dynamic individuals, dynamic families, um, and we want to support them in every way. Um, the way we decide with other um, transfers, often it's uh, due to breeding. So the program uses um, actually special software that we'll find mm -hmm. is actually like matchmaking software and uh, it's like match.com, but scientific. And, um, <laughs> it's Tinder and Wolf. <laughs> exactly. I like that one better. Um, so, and they're going to be using um, special software to use to really find animals that have the lowest inbreeding coefficient. Um, both Mexican wolf and red wolf, uh, really genetic health is a primary concern. Yeah. and the recovery of these two species. And that's because they came from very limited founding populations. Um, both of these wolves, wolf uh, species, um, had one time been extinct in the wild. Mm -hmm. 
So for the Mexican gray wolf, uh, all Mexican wolves on the planet today uh, descended just from seven individuals. So that's the founding population. Wow. Uh, and for the red wolf, just 14. So when it comes to uh, decisions about who's going to, you know, who's going to uh, breed with whom or have that opportunity, um, we're going to be looking at genetics first. Uh, also, you know, release into the wild. We want to release animals that will offer um, something new genetically to enhance that, that hmm. wild population. Um, so really genetics is at the helm. Um, so uh, the, the, the results of those sort of um, uh, that software matchmaking will help dictate um, the movement of wolves within that captive population. Um, and the other reason wolves would leave, of course, if, if they do get a chance uh, to be wild, which is really the best gift yeah. Um, we can give any of these wolves. And um, to date, um, the Wolf Conservation Center has released five wolves into the wild. Oh, nice. And um, four of them were Mexican gray wolves. Uh, one of them uh, was a red wolf um, who was kind of a release of wild, went to a propagation island, but still wild, no no fences. So that works. Where's and, the island? Um, it's um, St. Um, Vincent's National Wildlife Refuge okay. off the Gulf Coast of Florida. Really lovely. <laughs> it's oh, really nice. pretty. Okay. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, and the latest release we did uh, was just uh, over a year ago. So we just celebrated the year anniversary. Um, and, um, you know, most, most wolves born in captivity, they stay there. Uh, but she was among the lucky that got to uh, uh, start a wild life. And she was um, just about two weeks old uh, when she was given that opportunity. Wow. So she was, it's called a cross foster. Uh, and in fact, right now is typically the season um, when uh, these cross foster events happen. And what occurs is um, if this was a Mexican gray wolf, um, so we were watching our, our pregnant females or hopefully pregnant, but you can kind of tell their behavior and their size. And, um, and we're constantly communicating with us fish and wildlife about the timing, uh, when we think maybe, um, uh, you know, conception occurred. Uh, we know the gestation period or length of pregnancy is 63 days. So you're just trying to predict and figure out as close as possible what the timing will be. And as soon as pups are born, ideally you'll have um, our team go in just to quickly look at the pups, see how many of them there are, um, and just, you know, kind of make sure they're all okay. And, uh, and then report back to U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And uh, if there is a decent size uh, in regard to the litter um, and the timing matches up with a wild uh, family, wow. um, then you can uh, kind of pull a switcheroo uh, where you can um, take a, um, a wolf or more, one or two or three, depends on the size of the litter, um, from the captive litter get them out to the wild, which is interesting, um, and then insert them into the wild den where pups of a similar age have been born. Um, and depending on the numbers and also the number of the, the wild litter, the size of the wild litter rather, um, sometimes a pup from the wild then will be taken and then inserted into the captive um, family. 
And in our case, it was just one pup, which was a little scary just because just one doesn't even have a little, another little nugget to nestle with, you know, on the flight over to the Southwest because we're, we are in New York. Um, and we actually, our curator, uh, did a great job and got us um, a wonderful fellow who donated his private jet to fly our veterinarian oh, nice. and our curator, uh, who and all the wolves are in her charge, um, out to the Southwest um, with this little, you know, little wolflet, this, you know, size of a potato, basically, <laughs> eyes barely just beginning to open. So um, no idea what's going on. But they did get there and ended up inserting um, a little hope uh, into the den of uh, a wolf family called the Saffle Pack in Arizona. That's cool. So it's, you know, it's very, it's scary because whenever you put an animal out in the wild, um, there are a lot of natural threats in the wild they might not face in captivity. But that's life. Um, but there are also a lot of unnatural, um, illegal threats out in the wild uh and we have had um some of our wolves uh illegally killed or poached um after leaving um our center and being released into the wild so we don't know about um the little pup we named her hope because she has she brings us hope for recovery for the mexican gray wolf um u.s fish and wildlife has never they've never been able to catch her um, and normally they do a population survey at the end of every year where they try to catch as many of the yearlings at that point or almost yearling wolves and also other wolves just to collar them and just collect data from them, you know. Gotcha. Um, and um, she eluded uh, the federal agents, um, or at least that's the way I like to look at it. Or there is a possibility she didn't make it, but I just think she's got that New York moxie and yeah, and yeah she's out there just you know, kicking butt. I, I choose to believe I that like as well. I like to think that way. Yeah. So does so, the mother raise her as though it's her own without knowing or? Knowing? Yeah. And so it's, um, it was actually a, a, um, a tool um, that was um, first uh, done with the Red Wolf program. So they were, they were really kind of, they were the pilots. They were really going out there and, and pioneering all these new um, kind of ways to recover wolves. And they use and they used the Red Wolf program for many years. The Mexican Wolf program just started using it a handful of years ago. Um, and what they find is, you know, because you know, as and I'm a mom, I can't imagine. First of all, you know, people in the dead of night sneaking into my house and taking my kid. Yeah, like that's yeah, you know, <laughs> that's not right. Um, but uh, but you know, it's it's what we do. It's kind of one of those extraordinary measures we do to. Uh, to save these guys and you hope on some level, even though I'm, it's a huge ask on our part that they understand <laughs> that yeah. why we're doing all this. Um, but, uh, but really it's, it's, they, they're a bigger part of than just their families at this point. They're mm-hmm. part of really the recovery of their, uh, the recovery of their entire species. Right. So, um, and you don't, we didn't see much, um, actually behavior uh, change after we did take hope. Um, and maybe it's also because in the wild you have to be tougher and they, when you do have large litters as a wild animal, maybe you're just more programmed to be able to carry on even if you lose a pup or what have you. 
um, than than what we're used to with our society to support us and you know yeah. um, healthcare and everything else. Um, but what they find is when they take up animals and put them into the den of these wild um, packs, um, that the mom will raise them, embrace them, you know, raise them as their own. Wow. So um, it's kind of, I mean, and that's where from the flip side, you know, if I went to bed in the dead of night, someone dropped off a couple of kids. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be so cool. <laughs> So that's a lot of work that I didn't sign up to do. Wolves are way so, cooler than us. <laughs> I a hundred percent. So it's interesting. And this and this past um, crossbuster was kind of a, a, a historic one because um, normally wolves are so frightened of people um, that even the mom, when she's in there with the pups, because really the first couple of weeks she's going she's going to be in there nursing, basically, and just caring for the pups not getting too much, you know, me time. Um, and, uh, and normally they leave that den immediately. As soon as people come, um, they will just leave their pups behind. They're not going to stay close, but they don't generally, you know, that, you know, kind of the story of like the mother bear is going to like, you know, protect her cubs. Yeah. That's not really the way uh, wolves operate. And, um, but in this case, um, and, and I believe it was the very first time for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, or and it's also Arizona um, state agents as well, it's an interagency team. Um, but this time it was a very rainy uh, time in Arizona, and um, and the mom didn't leave the den. So, and actually, it was oh, wow. the second den they went to they trekked miles. They went to one den, the mom didn't leave, so like, uh oh, let's go to another one she wasn't leaving either and then they had this little pup they had to figure out like okay tick tock we gotta we gotta make sure, a decision yeah. we're in the middle of the wilderness here and there was um as our curator because she was there she described it almost like as a skylight where they could see through this little hole in this kind of rocky den uh the mom nursing her pups so they ended up just dropping hope through the hole oh wow and, and hoping for the best and I must imagine, um, like Tom Cruise in, in Mission Impossible, just coming down from the ceiling, like right, on that yeah, wire. Yeah. And um, but no wires. And uh, and what she ended up doing is just kind of wiggled on over to the the puppy pile and began to nurse. And so they figured, well, it's got to be a good sign. That's and they called sign. it called it a day. Yeah. So it's it's really incredible, and um, and soon we'll find out if they were able to do any cross fosters this year. Um, with uh, everything happening, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Um, and they just everything is kept very quiet until they release the information. Um, and one little tidbit or asterisk to this whole story, though, is although cross fostering is a great tool to get um, animals out there because of course they're not going to learn anything from captivity. Um, they're really going to grow up as wild wolves. Um, in order for it to be a real success, they have to make it to breeding age and then produce pups themselves right. in order for those genetics to reach um, the greater population. That's kind of the whole point, um, right? Yeah. And so, and it's unfortunately replaced the traditional way of getting new wolves out into the wild was releasing um, adult individuals or family groups, uh, which was e would be even better. 
um, because that way they can get those genetics into the population so much sooner. Sure. Um, and uh, so we wish they would use both tools, actually. Well, well, okay. I got a few questions. Why? What is what is breeding age for the wolves? Like what? At what? Um, wolves can breed um, really by the time they're two. Okay. Um, and actually, Hope's mom, her first litter, she had very young. <laughs> she had it too. Um, but uh, but they can also breed in well into their years. Um, they are finding that um, you know if you don't breed um for many years and then you begin to be a breeding wolf later in life uh you might have um a lower success rate mm -hmm. you know it's like a use it or lose it situation right um which did become an issue in the captive population just because of not enough room not enough facilities to breed some of the younger animals um that should have been bred okay. uh but there's all sorts of <laughs> challenges I yeah guess. i'm sure uh different variables come into play um and so okay so if releasing you know kind of full-grown wolves is the optimal way um why isn't that happening more often um i think that's happening really for political pressure um you know uh wolves are a political hot potato uh some people love them some people hate them um, some people have to live with them. Some people don't. Um, and so it was really coming from the state level, um, that they were, uh, just really pushing back a lot on having wolf, um, reintroduction. In fact, um, even a, uh, um, uh, you know, the state of New Mexico, which is now participating. So it's great. But a few years ago, even filed a, a restraining order against u.s fish and wildlife what from wow. releasing um wolves so it really it does take a village um so it takes you know the state level to tribes um federal yeah. uh individuals and um and i think because you know it's maybe it's pups maybe i don't know yeah. and also they probably realize survivability of pups is is might be lower um that uh it seems like that was a more uh a pill more a little bit easier to swallow mm -hmm. i think than releasing um adults or adult families uh but uh, actually um a colleague used a great analogy the other day um with cross fosters it's almost like trying to grow a tree by planting a few seeds um which i don't know if you know it might take, it might be a weed, it might get right, stepped yeah. on, whatever, or not weed, but a little teeny thing. But normally when you want to grow a tree and, and find it success, you know, you grow a little tree or, you know, a smaller mm -hmm. version or a sapling. So, um, and it's really kind of just shows you how one, you're going to probably get what you need done. Um, the other one, it's, it's really great in theory and it's it involves a really cool story and, and a neat one that involves moms and all that and uh and puppies but it's it's so probably less likely that you know those those little seeds are going to grow up to be that big tree yeah i can imagine that's um yeah that's definitely frustrating to know how political it has become we talked about that a little bit before the call but well yeah. so for First of all, are they protected? Are people punished if they, um, you know, 
kill kill wolves, and second of all, is that even enforced? Um, yeah. So um, for the Mexican gray wolf, um, you know they are uh, they are protected uh, by the Endangered Species Act, mm-hmm. um, and it is illegal to you know harm or kill or harass. Um, however, um, with uh, wolf reintroductions. And with the Mexican wolf, let's I'll talk specifically, I guess, about the Mexican wolf. Um, when they're released, it's it's basically um, probably to give you know some management flexibility, and again, maybe make it more acceptable um, to the states and the citizens there. Um, they have uh, like a little asterisk next to this population again as a non-essential experimental po- uh, population. Right. Yeah. I and that, that means, yeah, if they get um, you know, into if there's livestock conflict or um, if, you know, anyone thinks they pose a threat to people or, or a pet, um, there's definitely some management um, that can occur. And in fact, that's a, um, it's uh, actually in the federal register right now. So the federal government's looking for um, public comment uh, because they are changing. Um, it's called this like rule, this regulation of management regulation under the Endangered Species Act for the Mexican gray wolf specifically right now hmm. uh, via court order. So they're mandated to do it um, because the ju- a federal judge found that really their current management um, under the 10J was just um, not something that uh, suggests they're trying to recover a species, uh, which includes a population cap of like 325 wolves which is weird because if you're that 326th wolf, it's like, oh, nope, you're out. Yeah, Not allowed yeah, to be in the wild. Yeah. Um, and also more more flexibility to allow killing of wolves if there's um, any impact on livestock or even the native prey, which makes no sense because that's what we want them to eat. Right. So right now, um, if anyone is interested in, in you know, submitting comments, um, uh, our action alert is going to be up soon, but they're all over the place if you just Google it. So just go out there and try to take action for Lobos and just Google 10 J rule action. (laughs) You'll find it. Okay. And we'll, we can put some uh, like stuff on the show notes, but for right now, yeah, 10 J. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. And and is there anything happening with the red wolves uh, on a similar level? Yeah. So red wolves, um, you know, I mentioned they were, they're kind of the pioneers when it came to cross fostering and actually the red wolf reintroduction project was really a pilot project in itself where it led as, as, as really the, the go-to for um, how to reintroduce wolves. Um, it became, it came before the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone national park, uh, central Idaho for the Mexican gray wolf. It was back in 1987 um, gotcha. after wolves had, been extinct in the wild where from captivity they began to re, uh, reintroduce them into the wild and um, and that program was going very well uh, it probably peaked at a population of close to 150 and um, and really one of the biggest um, I think uh, challenges for that program well there are two big ones uh, one of them was uh, gunshot mortality and that's because um, red wolves and um, coyotes do share some ancestry mm-hmm. and they can be easily mistaken for one another, um, especially if you know, far range. 
um, and also um, hybridization with coyotes. Sure, yeah. Because they have that shared ancestry, um, they can uh, uh, breed and produce um, viable young. Uh, and that's actually been proven with like all all the wolves. So they kind of break the rules when it comes to like what's a species that dogs do. Um, so uh, because um, people, well, one of the reasons a small population there really enjoyed hunting coyotes, um, I think really the straw that broke the camel's back for that for that program in the community was when um, a, a new proposal to have coyote hunting at night within the Red Wolf recovery area um, in North Carolina, which is it's close to the Outer Banks, a national refuge called Alligator River, um, uh, some organizations uh, filed a lawsuit and said, this is ridiculous. This is this, you know, violates the Endangered Species Act to put um, red wolves in, in harm. Mm -hmm. uh, this way. Um, it's pretty it's clearly designed to, yeah, it's hard enough to yeah. keep them, um, you know, tell them apart from a distance in the daytime. And, uh, and that really got people so upset, uh, and really demanding that us fish and wildlife like abandon the project or fix it or do, do, do it really got kind of everything exploded at that point. Uh, and it probably was not fun to be a, uh, working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, to tell you the truth, because they're probably getting it from all, all sides. And uh, but what they did is they halted the program. And when was and, this? Sorry. Um. What? Sorry. When was this? This was 2014, I want to okay. say. Um. And they halted all of the kind of management they were doing, um, to reassess this recovery program. Um, and they wanted to decide whether to stop it altogether, continue as is, or to modify it in some way. And, um, and when I say they stopped all management, that means a lot of their people on the Red Recovery team were let go um, or just moved to a different position. They were no longer working on Red Wolves. Um, they weren't really counting Red Wolves um, as often. Uh, they weren't collaring Red Wolves. Uh, they stopped all uh, captive to wild releases, which is through the um, cross foster. Hmm. Um, and, um, and they stopped uh, something called their, uh, uh, their coyote like um, sterilization program. So okay. what they do because coyotes pose a threat to the genetic integrity of this population is they, um, you know, wolves and coyotes are both territorial um, animals. Uh, their family groups will hold a territory. And um, they found that if there was a coyote in the midst that was, say, with a red wolf or kind of threatening to get together with a red wolf, they would take that coyote um, and a veterinarian would neuter or spay the coyote and then put the coyote back in the wild because they're going to hold that place. And even if they're with another a red wolf, say their companions, they can't produce young. So they're not going to pose a threat to that gene pool, but they're going to, they will prevent other coyotes that are intact from coming in and taking that spot. Gotcha. And it was proven effective. Um, it's definitely, you know, micromanagement and, and yeah. not the, you know, it's pretty invasive. Um, but uh, it was working. Uh, and actually everything was kind of trending towards working until they halted all of these measures uh, and that's when we just saw the red wolf um, 
population begin to plummet. Uh, and even giving, you know, some landowners the right, you know, to have wolves killed if they were on their property. Yeah. It was, it was just um, a sad mess and uh, really discouraging for the people that have been working uh, from the agency level to people like us, to people that were just um, supporters of Red mm -hmm. Wolf Recovery, uh, just to see them, you know, kind of just dying on our watch um, while we'd seen so, such great success for so many years. Yeah. What was the ultimate high number or approximation of high number? At what point is it self-sustaining that you don't have to intervene anymore? Were we close to, were we close to that? Yeah, I don't even know to tell you the truth. Okay, yeah. um, you know, and uh, I mean, ideally, because that was just one population, uh, if it's just a single population, it could be a catastrophic weather event. You know, who knows? It's better to have interconnected, smaller yeah. um, populations. Anyone who's um, been to the Outer Banks knows that. It's just like, one. Yeah, yeah. It's Hurricane Central. It's. Oh, my God. Yeah, already. Already they were having right. like a hurricane threat and it's yeah. before hurricane season. So, yeah. so yeah, it's, um, but you know, it's amazing. I think it was last year, but there were several hurricanes kind of in Florida or past couple of years. And this couple of them were coming straight for some of these areas and they're just resilient. I yeah. mean, just wolves in general. Um, it's pretty incredible. So I used to live there a few years ago, um, and now I only live on the bottom part of the state. So Outer Banks mm -hmm. is the top part. Um, and yes, there's a lot of hurricanes. We've had evacuated a couple of times. Uh, but one time I went kayaking with a, with a bunch of buddies. And if you howled, you could actually hear them howl if you're really, really lucky. Um, and we did, and we could. And it was incredible. It was so amazing just to know you're here in the last... You're hearing the last of a, of a wild species. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, I don't own land. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not someone who, you know, relies on the land, but it's definitely frustrating to hear that the efforts have, have been stalled. Um, yeah. It seems like that location is kind of um, rejecting them. I wonder if there's any thoughts about opening it up. I know that they're naturally from there, but like, you know, Mm -hmm. Even any thoughts about opening up towards any part in the western part of the state or, or along that, um, you know, I guess that laundry or that latitude? Yeah. So um, Red Wolves, there are there are right now some active efforts kind of looking for different release sites. Okay. Um, and there was initially a, a, a second release site. It was on the Smoky Mountains. Yeah. Um, it just uh, wasn't successful. Okay. And um, and I should say that U.S. Fish and Wildlife just this past January um, took a really um, positive step in the right direction after really just so much inaction. Um, and I, I'll go as far to say neglect um, mm. that they did take um, some wolves from the propagation island that I mentioned in the Gulf. Uh, St. Vincent um, uh, National Wildlife Refuge and moved those wolves into that ca uh, North Carolina population uh, in hopes that they would uh, pair up um, with some of the single wolves there um, and breed. And um, so that was really good. So it wasn't right now, they're not releasing from captivity, but they did the one thing that they could do was at least move some wolves into that population 
which is really the only real population of red wolves. Um, and unfortunately, it looks like um, they didn't pair up. Uh, but one of the reasons they did do this uh, was because I believe in 2019 was the first year that no pups were born. Uh, yeah. Um, which, you know, if you have a shrinking population and, you know, they're getting they're getting killed, you know, whether it's cars or um, illegal activity, and then they can't even have pups uh, or they're not even capable of having the numbers um, to couple up and form family groups and, and produce pups. That really does not, you know, give one much hope. So, yeah. but I do applaud U.S. Fish and Wildlife for taking that step because um, it was something. And, uh, and we hope they continue uh, to build on this population uh, and include looking for additional um, areas. Um, one of the things about the North Carolina population right now in the Alligator River is it had been there and it reached, it kind of got through the most difficult parts. You know, it got through, we figured out how to deal with hybridization. Um, and once, you know, once there's a, a large enough, I don't know what that number is, but coyotes aren't going to come in. You know, it's, it's, they, they got to that point. Um, they got to the triple digits plus, you know, like 150 wolves. Um, and um, to start over, you're going to have a small group of vocal opponents anywhere you go. Right. So, to see that that set this precedent um, where just, you know, a small, you know, local opposition can overrule federal law um, is just discouraging. And I just hope that, you know, we, you can't just back up and give up. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's definitely considerations and accommodations and compromise. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people will fight that too. I probably would, depending on what right, it is, yeah. like the 10 J rule. But I mean, it's, you know, there are things you can do, but it's just it's such a waste. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm thinking about those coyotes that were sterilized. Yeah. Like, how rude. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, or maybe I'd even be manage. Pretty pissed. <laughs> yeah, or maybe even manage, you know, lethally um, yeah. just for this critically endangered um, wolf and its recovery. And now it's for not, you know, mm. and all the people that had to do that work. Um, and now it's for nothing. Yeah. Um, so while I am encouraged that they're looking for additional sites, I, I'm, I, I think that we have to honor the original site and also what, what, and make sure we've learned from our mistakes. Yeah. Um, because you're not going to find anywhere that's just like, yeah, bring on the wolves. Yeah. Um, so my apartment, see. but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how, uh, how many wolves can we say without a doubt are, are out there, red wolves in particular? And then how large is their, their, you know, their location they're at? Um, oh, I don't even, I'm terrible with, I grew up in New York city, so I go by blocks, like how <laughs> big an area is. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. But it's, um, it's basically, I think five different, um, counties. Um, and right now, um, they're, population the official population is the known um 10 yeah. in the wild and that's because those are ones with functioning radio collars mm -hmm. um members of active members of the team on u.s fish and wildlife right now say um they would guess 20 no more okay. um uh, but they definitely know there are a few more than 10 because they know that a few of them their collars just like went kaputs um but uh 
but not, you know, no breeding pairs. Uh, nothing yeah. we've heard of. I mean, it'd be wonderful to hear some news if there were some uh, some activity where they did have pups in the wild, because hopefully those family groups will then defend their territory, remain intact, and can do that for a few more years. But uh, right now is puppy season. We're com actually coming to the close of puppy season. Um, so it would be a wonderful thing if, um, and again, I don't even know what sort of rules uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is under right now because of uh covid right um i know they did have some restrictions uh i think back in march and april um so but they get out there they look around hopefully they find some pups and they can give yeah. us some good news so what would be the continued plan with them like let's say the numbers keep dwindling is it to continue to reintroduce them from the island in, in yeah uh, i mean Florida? The island, I mean, because there were wolves uh, that went from captivity to the island. Um, actually, our one red wolf that was released um, uh, several years ago, he was released to that island, and it's his um, offspring that went to oh, um, uh, North Carolina. Uh, he unfortunately passed away last summer. Um, but, uh, but two wolves from the, I believe it was actually, I'm not sure it's two. I think it's two from the North Carolina zoo, maybe just one. Oh, I don't know. Um, were released to the Island, um, just this year to, to move them over and to replace, um, the fellow that was born at our facility who had passed away. Um, and if they have pups, maybe they could start doing that, um, some more once they become yearlings, but it's really just one single family on this Island. So, um, so it's kind of a tall order. Um, but I mean, really it, just keeping the, the animals there alive and making sure that there's boots on the ground, um, you know, working with, uh, working with the state, working with um, the locals. Um, you know, uh, we work very closely with one of the main scientists who worked in the Red Wolf program for years. And a lot of the people that live right within this area, they are, um, they're indifferent. Yeah, they really don't care, you know, um, and then you have some people that really embrace red wolves. But again, um, a very small group um, of a pretty savvy group um, are very opposed. Um, and and unfortunately, they've left their mark on this program. Yeah. Uh, and some, you know, I was telling you that I saw, um, you know, billboards driving around in that area even a couple hours out of just you know against the u.s fish and wildlife services so um, yeah and, and you know it's interesting i went to a hearing um years ago related to the review of the red wolf program and um and uh i brought my daughter at the time and i think it's because i just didn't it was kind of a last minute scheduling thing and she was young and i was like oh, i'll just bring her and um and we're in this auditorium like giving comments um and she was just on the floor drawing with crayons and we got back to the hotel oh and actually the, no one in the town where I staying which was right there even knew what a red wolf was That's like they didn't you, even yeah. know that there were red wolves right um but the people that came out to this hearing knew and um and really when she got home and she was probably like five she just said wow people really hate coyotes. And a lot of the comments there were about the damage of coyotes or how coyotes are vermin or coyotes are terrible and how having red wolves there prevented them 
took away their freedom to actually hunt some of these coyotes. Mm. And it was, it was, you know, I was, I was impressed <laughs> that she came up with that because it's true. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was, it was depressing. It really yeah. was. Yeah. And coyotes are resilient. I mean, coyotes, I mean, so are oh wolves, but coyotes will be there. Oh, coyote. I, I think coyotes are the bomb. They are amazing. <laughs> I, I really do because despite how much we just roll out on them, um, you know, because, you know, most states you can hunt coyotes and they have even hunting contests and sometimes mm. they're classified as vermin and there's no even seasons or anything. Oh, Here wow. in New York, um, you're allowed to hunt coyotes, but they are protected um, outside of a short season. Um, in fact, there's actually a family of Eastern coyotes down the block from me right now, oh, nice. which has been really fun, um, kind of during this quarantine because I miss the wolves and, um, but there's five little pups that with my binoculars or my camera from far away, I see them frolicking. <laughs> um, so I'm very giddy about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, the coyotes are just so resilient. And, um, and that's where, you know, like, I, I think it's, it's funny because we're just so silly about coyotes because we keep on trying to kill them and then they just come back twice as strong. Um, but we should really take a moment and learn from them and how management of wildlife um, need not be killing alone. Uh, there are a lot of non-lethal tools. There's a lot of measures one can take where we can all coexist peacefully. But, um, but yeah, ki even, even people, some people that love wolves, um, they just don't like coyotes. And yeah. I was like, oh, I just yeah. think they're great. <laughs> and the thing is with the wolves, you know, with the red wolves, you can easily, you know, it's probably not the best thing, but you can easily monetize them. I mean, imagine having the only place in the world that has red wolves. I've been to the, I've lived in the Outer Banks. They've got a lot of yeah. people there during the summer, but it drops off. And yeah. You know, having the only place with a such small, I mean, you can hear the last voices of this, you know, these incredible species that are disappearing. That's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. Uh, yeah, no, and, and while I agree monetizing wildlife is weird, yeah, um, if like you take, it. I know, if you take like an economic kind of lens and look at wildlife conservation, um, it's a moneymaker. Right. And, um, you know, the wolves in Yellowstone, um, and this is from a study from several years ago, and I think the numbers are much higher at this point just because Yellowstone, when it was fully open, it, it became almost too crowded. <laughs> it was becoming an issue because so many people are there to see the wolves. Yeah. And, um, and, but this one study that came out, uh, it showed that about $35 million uh, was brought to the greater Yellowstone um kind of community. So those are the restaurants, the hotels, the, the tour guides, the people that um, rent you scopes and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but that came in annually from people who came to Yellowstone to see wolves specifically. Wow. Yeah. And, and the carrying capacity uh, in Yellowstone for the wolf population is probably around 100. Um, that's basically where it tends to balance out. And this is really not a good way to think about it. But I'm using this economic lens. Yeah, gotcha. um, if you take those hundred wolves and and you divide uh, 35 million by that hundred, you can find out what each wolf is worth, and uh, it's pretty remarkable. And 
despite this economic value um, and this kind of economic boom um, to the region um, in, you know, areas right outside of Yellowstone, um, you can hunt wolves and, uh, and you can buy a hunting permit for, you know, 20, 20 bucks or so. So (laughs) it's just, um, you know, someone mentioned, I didn't, I didn't make this analogy the first time, but it really is a case of, of killing the golden goose when it comes to, Mm -hmm. um, wolves in Yellowstone specifically. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize there was only that few there. Um, well, and you know, I think it's important to look through these at, at these through an economic lens. Not everyone is going to be as concerned about their well-being, but hopefully, you can get those people with you know money in pockets or, or just greenbacks. Uh, yeah. But speaking of that, you actually you started off on Wall Street, right? Your career you started <laughs> off uh, kind of in a completely different trajectory. How did you make that switch? <laughs> How do you think you can get um, more people to do it? Well, it's funny because it's more like, how did I end up on Wall Street? Uh, That was kind of the way it went. But, um, you know, as I said, I was a city kid, loved animals, um, really specifically fell in love with, with, you know, predators just from probably watching TV as a kid and reading books about lions and jaguars and and wolves and hyenas and all that stuff. And, um, and I ended up on Wall Street because I couldn't find a job that would help me <laughs> embrace those things in the city. Go figure. Because <laughs> uh, I really just was like, what? Leave the city? I'm never going to do that. Um, so I probably just had like an early life crisis where I was like, oh, no, I'm having fun at this job. Um, it was I could pay off some student loans and all that. But yeah. I realized like, wait a second, this isn't where I belong. And so I just moved out west and and took a job where I primarily worked with um, large cats in captivity, but raised awareness um, and uh, did that at two different places. And then um, after making some wonderful friends with some animals um, and learning a lot and having some great experiences, really wanted to do more um, for the wild populations. Yeah. And that's when I found out there was this place called the Wolf Conservation Center and wolves happened to be my favorite, um, an hour north of New York City. So I was just like, are you kidding? So it took a roundabout uh, route, but um, it worked out and I still can't believe it. <laughs> That's perfect. I was talking with my wife before this podcast and we both were really pumped because we both were those nerds in middle school and high school that had the wolf shirts. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you were that kid or knew those kids, but that was us. I probably still have a, a shirt. Um, oh, that's cool. But yeah, it's just one of those things that that's a really cool story. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, oftentimes I wish I took a left instead of a right. So it's cool that, hey, you can still do that. You can still make that turn. Yep. Gosh, <laughs> it still blows my mind. <laughs> well, so keeping everything in mind of like what's been happening with the new administration, I talked to a lot of people from a lot of different nonprofits or a lot of organizations how has, and I know it, I'm sure it has, but how has the new administration impacted your efforts to, you know, help conserve wolves? Yeah, um, you know, and I think wolves wolves sometimes somehow get impacted under every administration. Mm. Um, uh, sometimes in a positive way. I guess the reintroduction was when the political kind of stars aligned back in 95 and 96 for that to happen um, in so many places. But um 
I would say the current administration definitely is having an impact on a lot of our environmental laws. Um, and with wolves, wolves specifically, um, it would basically be um, the administration's rewrite of the Endangered Species Act, which is really right. the cornerstone of our environmental law. And um, it actually took effect, I believe, in October. Um, not that much has been able to happen since just because of all the craziness and lawsuits. And a lot of lawsuits haven't been able to progress too much either. But um, basically, um, the rewrite uh, changed the way um, the ESA is implemented in a couple of ways. Um, one way it would um, no longer uh, be able to afford protections for threatened species, uh, which is something that happened in the past. So even if a wolf is threatened and near to becoming endangered, uh, they couldn't prevent uh, if, uh, those animals from being killed. Um, also, uh, uh, economic interests. Um, when deciding whether or not to basically recover a species or, or protect a species, um, they're going to be looking um, at the economic interests or implications of um, that um, action, where previously under the ESA, they would only look at scientific uh, considerations. Um, and so, you know, how much is it worth to save a species? Um, I, it's it's not really a good thing for imperiled species. Right. Um, and it basically is saying unless it can some benefit us in some way right. financially, uh, it's not worth recovering them. Um, also, you know, just the designation of something called critical habitat. Uh, the way uh, this new kind of rewrite um, would uh, not allow agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to necessarily designate um, habitat that's critical and has to be kind of safeguarded for the species if a species was no longer there. So really just making it a lot harder um, to do some of the things that, that that's been a, a major component of the Endangered Species Act for um, for its what, 45, how old is it, 73? For its 43 yeah. years. So um, it's, it's, um, or 50, 53, gosh, I'm not good at math today. Um, but, uh, so, and, you know, and this is despite the fact that the Endangered Species Act is like one of the most, you know, popular laws. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually when it was passed in 1973, it was really this bipartisan effort, um, along with like the EPA right. and all, a lot of different things. Um, and really was just a, a way of, of, of showing that we cared, um, about the living world around us, but for, for future generations to come as well. Um, so it really was a great moment, I think, in our country's history when a lot of these laws were put in place uh, and with so much, you know, so much support from every side. Um, and today, like 99% of the species is 99% successful. So um, it has um, been a very successful, very efficient. And, uh, and I believe the survey was done in maybe about four years ago. Uh, there was a survey and it showed that there is overwhelming support um, for the Endangered Species Act. And I believe it was um, 80, 84%, somewhere around there, support the Endangered Species Act. And then another 87 or 88 um, believed that, you know, it was doing a good job. So it okay. was, you know, it's it's popular, it's effective, um, and yet it's it's been under attack uh, probably several times 
um, over the past decade, uh, usually, you know, legislatively, um, really to, to roll back some of the, the power and the um, scope uh, yeah. of this law. Yeah, um, which is frustrating, especially when it comes to wolves, because they are such a such a symbol of American wilderness and, and American, even, you know, we overdid it, right? We, yeah. we hunted a lot of them to, you know, endangerment and even to extinction. But mm-hmm. then ingenuity, too, we were able to bring them back. I mean, you know, and then their own resilience. I mean, it's so much within a species. What do you say to someone who's like, ah, why, why do we need wolves or we don't need wolves? What, what do you say to try and sway them? So, um, well, one thing is just their ecological importance. Um, you know, wolves are a keystone species. Um, and, uh, and that means they can have um, uh, an impact, an ecological impact on many different levels of the ecosystem. Um, and so I like to even bring it back to the name keystone species and think of architecture of what a keystone really is. So it's going to be that stone like on top of an arch that really holds the integrity of that structure or that, um, that archway. And so in the same regard, wolves kind of hold the integrity, the resilience, the health of the biodiversity within a natural system. Uh, and that was really what was best demonstrated in Yellowstone National Park as an outdoor laboratory uh, because it was yeah. a place where there were no wolves for 70 years uh, again, the political stars aligned, and with the help of this uh, Endangered Species Act and the American public, wolves were able to return uh, through reintroduction. And then kind of the trickle-down impact it had on the Yellowstone ecosystem, a rejuvenation, really, of the landscape, where mm-hmm. um, where really just because of the overpopulation of uh, the prey, uh, uh, mostly going to be bison and elk, uh, in Yellowstone, um, had really been degraded. So they saw a lot of changes with the overbrowsing. You know, they weren't having regeneration of these trees and other vegetation, and um, and that had an impact on many other animals because of loss of food and habitat. So just like any overpopulation, it's going to degrade um, the landscape. And then when wolves returned, it brought the elk population down to more of a historic level changed the way the elk and other prey behave. They were a little bit less bold uh, around wolves. Uh, in fact, um, this, as the story goes, and I just love this part, <laughs> it's kind of, but um, when wolves first returned, the elk didn't really know what wolves were. Because they had been there for 70 years. years. Yeah, wow. And um, and so I imagine the elk being like, oh, how do you do, new neighbor? And then realizing that probably... <laughs> what sharp have. teeth you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it didn't take them long to figure it out. Um, but uh, really by, it's almost, you know, by changing the way the elk behave, changing where they forage for food, allowed um, really the rejuvenation of a lot of those plants, creating its... Uh, different habitat that can accommodate uh, a diverse uh, number of species. And so really we find that by returning the wolf, not only did it have a direct impact on elk, but impacted the trees, impacted um, fish, impacted uh, songbird population, um, the, uh, uh, you know, beaver, moose, Really, we saw this kind of this whole new chapter 
uh, unfold through this this recovery effort. Well, so uh, so I was curious, and I have this theory. I spoke with Carl Safina, um, who's like a you know world-renowned ecologist, uh, and one of the things we talked about was how chimps are a little bit more aggressive, or you know, definitely more aggressive than their uh, uh, cousins bonobos. Uh, so chimpanzees are you know a little bit more. Can fight it. There's a lot more infighting. There's a lot more uh, aggression going on, and mainly that's because chimpanzees are a patriarch, whereas bonobos mm-hmm. are a matriarch. Um, so I have this this theory. Uh, I'm not really sure, but like a lot of the, you know, when you have to fight to have sex and to breed to continue your species, that's going to be a lot more of an aggressive species. Mm-hmm. Uh, wolves, however, as you mentioned earlier. They've got an alpha male and alpha female, which are naturally the mother and father most times. Um, how how is that? Like, do they co-lead? How are arguments dealt with? Are they less violent uh, internally? That's a good um, question, and you know, really, I think one of the things that when people are talking about wolves or trying to get a better understanding of wolves. I think we're getting uh, uh, closer and closer to understanding that they're really so much like our families and us, hmm. um, which could sometimes be a good thing and sometimes be not yeah. such a good thing because we're not a perfect species either. But um, but so really just like every human family is going to have kind of a different dynamic, um, that's how it'll be with wolves too. So sometimes, you know, the it's going to be the female um, that might be more of a go-getter and kind of a, the real leader. And sometimes it's going to be the male. Um, so it really just depends on the actual family. But I think what wolves know um, and do so well and what we sh- should be reminded of and maybe try to learn from wolves is just how to work together. Um, you know, the uh, Kipling quote of the strength of the wolf is the pack strength of the pack is the wolf um Hmm. we actually mix those words a little bit um in a lot of our messaging and we just say the strength of the wolf is family um and that really is because by having by living um cooperatively uh with one another as a family group by being a social um animal um it allows them to hunt more effectively in terms of catching their prey um, remember, often they're hunting animals like elk or moose or deer, um, which are faster than wolves. Um, they can easily hurt wolves uh, with a kick, with yeah. that hoof. Um, so really working together uh, to, as a coursing predator to take down larger animals, um, numbers will help. Um, also, they're going to be feed, having enough food to feed the entire family if they're hunting large animals. Um, with numbers and working together, they can also defend their territory um, from neighboring wolves or maybe neighboring coyotes or other predators uh, that can fight for that territory. Um, there are a lot of even pup rearing is shared. It's hmm. amazing what they do. They um, and we have a uh, one um, uh, wolf family. Uh, that had pups, Hope's parents, um, the Mexican gray wolf. Um, The parents are named Trumpet and Light Hawk. (laughs) It's a a whole story, take too long. But but Trumpet, um, she was only two when she had her first litter, and she was just so wonderful at demonstrating 
um, really how wolf families work. And we have a lot of webcams at the Wolf Center. And so people got to like sneak into these families of these wolf families and really see just how they work. And um, what Trumpet did is it was her second litter um, last year and she tapped one of the yearlings, her only female yearling, whose name is Babs, <laughs> Babs the Mexican gray wolf, um, named after one of our really dedicated volunteers. Um, but she tapped Babs to be the babysitter. So just like in our families, wolves have help. It's not just like mom and dad doing it on their own if there are other wolves around. Wow, okay. So Babs was there. I mean, Trumpet had Babs with the pups probably more than Trumpet was with the pups. Wow. So Babs, a babysitter, was just a year old and was thrown in to have to, you know, um, groom the pups, play with the pups regurgitate food for the pups which is what um how the uh wolf pups are born just with regurgitated food for the first um uh month or two months and um and so not only is this cooperative living allowing trumpet and let's say her mate to hunt i mean in this case they weren't hunting because they're not wild but you know by doing you know giving a less experienced wolf the babysitting, allowing them to function and still be an effective and productive pack. Um, but they're also teaching Babs these parenting skills and traditions that might even be unique to that family. Right, yeah. So what they're finding is that with wolves, their family groups, they have these kind of unique little things, just like our families have these quirky little things that are just kept within the family. And they pass that down from generation to generation. And so it's a really great way of working together. They're going to be learning from one another, leaning on one another. Um, and so maintaining that bond is really um, important. All of those bo family bonds um, are really essential for wolves. And everything, a lot of things, maybe not everything they do, is about strengthening those bonds. So, um, you know, even when they're playing, uh, as adults or pups, um, often if they're pups and they're playing, they're going to be honing some of those skills to be, a, you know, a macho wolf, whether it's when they're hunting or, or you know, protecting territory, what have you. But that wrestling is going to be, you know, mm -hmm. making them better. Uh, but it's also going to be strengthening those bonds. Sometimes it's going to be um, uh, a way to confirm their status within the family, like what their rank is, what their role is. Um, so it's just a way to like a, another touch point, like everything they do is like a touch yeah, point. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And even they find that, you know, when, when, um, you know, every way they communicate, you know, they're constantly howling or using body language and, and just the same way if you're on a soccer team or baseball or whatever team you are, you're constantly communicating. You have to let you, you know, let them know your intentions, um, let them know what the plan is. Um, and, uh, and that way, again, it could be a cohesive, um, effective team. Um, and even grudges, they find that there, if there huh. are um, fights within the pack, they're more likely than dogs um, to get over it. <laughs> and it's because it's in their best interest. Who wants to have a grudge on the team? Gotcha. So really everything they do is they work hard. They like to have fun. They're always talking to one another. Um, but this is why that, you know, they can cooperate and just be like the perfect example of what teamwork looks like. What a great way of looking at it. What like a, you know,
it's 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 incredible though it really like even look you know at you know every family or even you know workplace team like you have your bumps in the road and so i'm always just like all right it's time to sit back and let's let's take a lesson from wolves again because we'll we'll be in a better place i I mean i always look at my brace at wwwd the what would wolves do and i I, I act (laughs) accordingly (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) that's Um, great for, so each wolves, uh, the wolves have a unique howl, right? Do they have unique howls within? You know, can you tell the pack apart through different howls? So um, they definitely every wolf has a unique voice, the same way we do. And um, you know, like at the wolf center, I will recognize a few of the wolves, um, not all of them, because most of them are off site. You know, even when people come and visit us, they don't see the wolves. They can visit through webcams. Yeah. Uh, or they can see our ambassadors or maybe might be able to behold like um, one Mexican wolf or red wolf, but most of them are off to exhibit to give them a natural stress-free uh, way to kind of re- keep them safeguard their wild behavior. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So, um, so I do recognize some of them and, and like our ambassador wolves, but they're just amazing. Um, but Zephyr is a wolf that is mm-hmm. more black in color and, He's this really high-pitched, squeaky howl. Um, Aleoa, their only female, has this really... Um, she's like the lazy of, howler, right? He's the lazy howler, <laughs> yeah. And she's sometimes really, um, like, screamy, like, like, just crazy. And then and their little brother, Nakai, is just like a yodeler. Um, red wolves sound totally different than, than gray wolves. They're much more kind of um there's some more barks and yips and kind of more screechy um but there's actually a really robust study that was done a couple of years ago i think it was the largest study of its kind and it went even beyond wolves it was more of canid so it involved jackals and mm. and some other animals as well but found that there was 21 different dialects in the canid family oh, wow. and they differed depending on the species even subspecies which would mean like Mexican wolf versus regular gray wolf because mm-hmm. Mexican wolf is a subspecies, um, and even location. So um, it's it's you know I think a part of that is going to be genetic as well. It's going to be environmental. Um, we know that some wolves within the same pack um, have a similar howl. There's actually a, mm. a wild wolf. His name was M eight oh six. Uh, he was a Mexican gray wolf, and his sister lived at the wolf center. Her name was F810, or Scarlet, is what we called her. And they had the same howl. And oh, they hadn't wow. seen each other since they were pups. And, oh, wow. I mean, it's just, it is amazing. Um, but, you know, howling for wolves, again, is just another another form of that key communication mm-hmm. for them to be, uh, you, you know, um, just working together. And, you know, often they do it to attract a mate or they could do it to um, even uh, kind of announce the pack to let other wolf packs or other animals know that they were, they're there. They might howl yeah. to alert them of their presence. In fact, when all of the wolves in a family howl, it sounds like there are more wolves than there actually are because you're going to have the wolves and also the harmonies. Uh, make it sound like a bigger oh, wow. pack than it is. Um, and just like us, sometimes wolves just howl to sing. Um, it's another way of family bonding, the same way if you're singing with a bunch of friends or around the campfire or 
national anthem, you know, yeah. it's all this kind of, we're in this together. Um, and wolves will do that too. So it's <laughs> pretty cool. That is really cool. And I mentioned before the call and you talked about it a couple of times, the, um, the webcams are so awesome. And then you also have a really cool um, YouTube page that shows a lot of the different wolves howl and the, um, the lazy howler. Yeah. Uh, but just, you know, even just watching them in their enclosures, it is really incredible. Um, but you can, I can actually see one enclosure through the other. So it looks like the wolves are relatively close to each other. Mm -hmm. Does that cause an issue or is that? Um, and that's really just a matter. We wish we had, you know, unlimited yeah. space and all the enclosures would be bigger too. Um, but no, it doesn't seem to cause an issue. Um, you know, basically the way we're set up is we do have our ambassador enclosure, which is on exhibit. So those are the wolves after people, um, learn about them. Um, they come and visit, we have an education program and then you get to go visit the wolves. Um, so they're, they're, um, kind of set on their own in that regard. And then most of the other exhibits are off exhibit, but they are kind of just corridors between them. Hmm. Um, so you do see them interact with one another. Um, often if, um, something's going on and like one pack is going crazy, just having fun or playing or even, um, you know, having a tiff or what have you, the other ones will get excited. Sure, yeah. Um, but, uh, it was interesting. We had, um, our kind of the face of the wolf center and he, he just, he passed away in, in September of, of 2018, but he was, um, his name was Atka and he, he was 16. So he lived a, a good life, but he really was, he's still the heart and soul of the Wolf Center. And, um, and he primarily lived alone. Um, he just didn't get along with other wolves, which hmm. made him kind of a poor role, role model, I guess, after everything I've been talking about. But, um, but he was, uh, his enclosure was across from this red wolf enclosure and um, and the two red wolves that lived there were selected to breed. Um, and so they were getting very romantic all winter long. And someone snapped a picture from the webcam where it showed them the two red wolves uh, actively engaged in breeding, um, which they actually get stuck together when they do that yeah, uh, yeah. temporarily. So it's very awkward. <laughs> He was just in the background watching from his enclosure, just like, oh, come on, guys. Can't you just please give me a break? <laughs> and I was just like, oh, poor Atka. But, um, but you do see that. Even we had um, two Mexican gray wolves. Um, one is named Diego, uh, and the other one was Magdalena, who's now at a different facility. Um, but uh, red wolves across the corridor had pups, and these guys were obsessed with them but not in a predatory way. Oh, wow. I can't, I can only imagine what they're thinking and you know, it's all just my take on it. But they, whenever I showed up or anyone just to see like, oh, maybe I can snap a couple of pictures or something of some of these pups because they're just super shy and very hard to see. They would start shouting the alarm, bark howling at me, oh. alerting the Red Wolf family, like, intruder, you better watch out. And and, wow. and every time they spoiled my my photo shoot wow. just to, like, you know, get some pictures so I can share them with the public. So, but, um, but uh, so you do see some interesting things. But for the most part, um, not I, not too much, but it's it's not natural, that's for sure. That is have, cool to, 
those close quarters. It is cool that they do know how to coexist or just kind of cooperate with each other. Yeah. Uh, they probably do sense, you know, even though it's not natural, they sense they're probably, you know, similar. Yeah, <laughs> no. And, and the best thing is, um, you know, I mentioned how people, you don't see, you know, it's kind of a ripoff when we're like, oh, we're home to 42 wolves and you get to see three guaranteed and that's it. Um, But, um, you know, because we package everything with education, so we're not a walkthrough, excuse me, um, we can just show up and look at wolves and leave. You have to learn about them. You learn a little history about their importance, their plight, um, just so people have a better understanding and appreciation of who they're going to see and who they're not going to see. But quite often, um, when people are learning, um, you know, about the wolves and they're looking at the ambassador wolves with an educator, all of a sudden something happens and all 42, um, just kind of explode, wow. um, and howling and this sound just kind of rolls down the hill. And, you know, I've, I've been working there for, you know, a long time. It just does not get old. Wow. Yeah, and I'm sure when it comes to, you know, with us transitioning with most of us working from home at the Wolf Center right now, um, you know, it's like, oh, I miss the office. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I don't have wolves here <laughs> every day serenading us. So that's when the coyotes come in hand. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. That's perfect. Well, I hope you get, I hope you can get back to them soon. Yeah. No, me too. Um. And I probably should have asked this earlier. And then I, um, I got a couple other questions. I don't want to take too much of your time, but this is super interesting. Okay. Um, but I probably should have asked this earlier. But like, when did, or uh, excuse me, how how did they determine whether an adult gets reintroduced or not? Ah, so that's a good question. Um, basically, the criteria will include um, genetics. So the genetics of that uh, particular wolf, um, the health of that wolf, and that they're going to be looking at just kind of the family history, um, if that wolf was in good health, um, uh, as well as their age and behavior. So um, because a lot of these animals reside um, in zoos uh, where they are on exhibit and used to seeing people on a regular basis, um, that does not make them a good uh, candidate for release necessarily. Right. So um, at our center, we really pride ourselves on safeguarding that that behavior. Um, we put that first. And so that's why they are off exhibit. You know, we probably could get more visitors if we had 42 wolves on exhibit gotcha, and yeah. three. Um, we're going to be doing that. Uh, even when we got our webcams, we primarily – first and we got them um, just to help us care for them in terms of husbandry um, to make sure we saw, you know, sometimes the wolves, it's very lush um, in the warmer, uh, like spring through fall. So it's very dense and very hard to see all the wolves. So we really use those cameras to make sure that we had eyes on all the wolves, saw their health, also could see some of the, the behavior dynamic um, and it wasn't until we opened up to the public that we realized, like, whoa, this is a really good engagement tool. And, uh, and little did we know just, like, how – I mean, we have, we have supporters that have, um, like, private clubs 
and pages like on social media where they have these closed groups and um, and they are just addicted to these <laughs> webcams. And it's great. I mean, it's amazing. And they've done so much for us too. You know, they'll be like, um, you know, they'll let us know if they see something that we might miss, you know, cause I'm not on the cams 24 seven. Right. Yeah. Um, or if it's, Hey, could you write a letter to the editor about this new legislation or something? And they'll do it. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, They're it's like, Oh my gosh, they're amazing. Um, so that's been great. But, um, Oh, what was I, I'm forgetting where I was going with this. Talking about how, what determines what. Oh yeah. So, yeah, and so another thing we do is we only feed them appropriate food. Okay. Um, So we want to make sure that wolves, if they are released in the wild, they know what's appropriate to hunt. Um, So we primarily give them roadkill deer. Hmm. Um, And uh, right now in our county, uh, you know, a lot of deer, there's there's too many deer, um, and a lot of them get hit by cars, um, and they come to us. So, um, so really by doing as much as we can to make them wild in our, you know, suburb of New York city, um, it works. And so, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think we did release, um, a a good number of adults while they were still doing adult releases for the Mexican wolf. So do they have difficulty learning how to hunt if they're eating roadkill? Um, yeah, that's um, it's kind, it's an innate skill hunting. Okay. So the same way a cat doesn't have to learn how to hunt. However, it does take practice. Right. In okay. fact, um, I was just thinking the perfect kind of infographic of that. Um, with these little coyotes in the neighborhood, I saw one of the pups, and a deer ran right past it and behind it, and the coyote was like looking at a bug. The whole time, like I had no, you know, just like, doo, 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 doo. Um, but one of those pups uh, a couple days later um, was playing with a chipmunk and ended up killing the chipmunk and then eating the chipmunk. And that was probably his first lesson, you know? Yeah. Um, so our first wolf that was released um, into the wild was in um, 2006 and her name was F838. Um, and she, uh, was introduced to a male. They had pups at a, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife facility. Um, and then they were released with 12 week, their 12 week old puppies. So just two of them. And, um, and we got word, I want to say about a week after they were released that they had taken down, um, their first elk. Oh, nice. And I had so much pride <laughs> for our little New Yorker wolf who had never even seen an elk before. Wow. Um, but was able with her mate to pursue an elk, um, to catch the elk and to kill the elk. I'm sorry, elk. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and it was just really cool, you know, and, and just these stories when we do release animals to be able to tell them to our constituents and especially kids, but adults too, just to stretch your imagination and think like, okay, so this wolf used to be living here and now it's in the wild without any fences, without any caretakers, but now a wild family. And it just, it just, it gives me goosebumps still. And I, you know, I talk about wolves constantly, but I, I just, it's just the best thing that we can do for these wolves, but also it's just a great way to engage people and get people interested in wolves. Yeah, how cool is that? So I just it's again, it's that resilience, it's that hope that hey, they can, 
if we let them, they could survive and they could thrive in the areas that they, you yep. know, that they call home. <laughs> um, so one thing I like to do in the podcast is I like to do, you know, create positive stories. So I don't want to give the impression that wolves are, that it's all bad for the wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's, it's definitely difficult, but I, you know, the reports that Washington, Oregon, they've seen increases in 2019 for wolf population, uh, like Mexican gray wolves increased, like, I think it was like 24% year over year from 2018 to 2019. Uh, first, are there any takeaways from this we can take to red wolves? I hate to keep bringing it back to them, but they're just so interesting. And then second, you know, how is this, is this trend promising? Is it an anomaly? Um, how do you feel about it? Yeah, so, um, you know, and wolves, I mean, the thing about wolves, they are a success story, you know, yeah. I mean, it's an Endangered Species Act success story. We pretty much got rid of them without having an understanding of why they're important. Right. Um, but uh, for, I guess, the first part, like in terms of these population increases and red wolves, um, really, it's just for red wolves, they just need the support. Uh, especially now that they're down to such a small uh, population. They just need the support. Uh, they need the protection. Um, and if they're mates there, that's a thing. They just have to make sure that right. they have some um, and produce pups. I mean, that's really how it starts. Um, and even, you know, for, you know, often the first number that's introduced is going to be like close to 10. Um, you know, that will be the initial uh, release population. So mm-hmm. they're kind of there, except they didn't handpick who's there. So mm-hmm. to be able to to support and kind of fortify that that current population so they do have those uh, choices uh, of mates um, is really something that I think they have to do now. Um, I otherwise, um, I just don't know. I, so um, I see what you're saying. So you're, you're saying this would be the number that would that was equal to that yeah. initial reintroduction in 1987. Yeah, no, but they would probably, you know, they would pick probably, you know, um, the most bonded pairs. Right, okay. They're already, yeah. So not just kind of introduce them and hope that they're going to meet and produce pups that like right. that month. <laughs> um, but you know, in terms of around the country, it's really encouraging, you know, to see. Um, and Oregon, and Washington are relatively new. Um, not super new, but, you know, relatively new. Those wolves came from, like, into Washington, from British Columbia or from Idaho, from that initial introduction into Yellowstone uh, mm. 20-some-odd years ago. And um, and I think the, the Oregon population, um, I think, really had the most promise uh, because there has been some controversy uh, around both these populations and the way the states and the federal government are managing them. Um, both of these states have a unique um, situation where in a portion of their states, they are uh, federally protected under the Endangered Species Act. Okay. And then in Oregon, the other portion of the state, which is the eastern portion, um, they're not protected. And in the eastern portion of Washington, they're protected, but only by the state Endangered Species Act. Hmm. So it's kind of a, a management hybrid. Yeah. It's probably complex. But in Oregon, this was the first year, um, I want to say in a handful of years, I don't know the exact number, that they did not kill any of the Oregon wolves. And not killing in a, it's not like a hunting season. It's more like um, 
uh, management due to, you know, uh, conflict with livestock mm. or what have you. This is the first year they didn't, and depredation on livestock went down. So the oh, population wow. went up. There was no lethal management, and the depredation went down, really demonstrating that tools like um, range riders or fladry, which is basically fencing that has ribbons on it to scare away wolves from sheep or cows, <clears throat> excuse me, um, or fox lights or, you know, just cowboys, you know, um, but yeah. these sort of measures work. Um, so it's wow. really great to see that. Um, and in Washington, too, it's great to see the populations going up. Washington, it's more of a controversial um, state at this point. Um, just because they've been trying to roll out new uh, wolf, I guess, recovery plans or management plans. And um, and unfortunately, uh, an entire, this isn't a good way to end it, an entire wolf family did um, get killed because of conflict with cattle yeah, on public lands, um, which is a whole different issue. But seeing these populations come back nationwide is something that can happen because wolves are resilient. Wolves have puppies, wolves can roam really far distances. So, you know, getting to Oregon or getting to California or getting to Washington, um, we see these, these wolves make these inroads, kind of deciding where they're gonna recover themselves. Mm. So um, they really, it, you know, it's, a, it's something to feel good about. Yeah. that we have wolves now and now it's just a matter of figuring out how how we're going to manage or how we're going to coexist um but wolves are here to stay that's awesome that's so good to hear and hopefully there are some learnings you know whether it's with the fences or other things that can be applied to the red wolves and to the you know mexican gray wolves um finally how, how many wolves are you know rough estimate are there in america right now and then maybe globally in the lower 48 states, I'm going to leave Alaska out for a second. Okay. Um, there's probably uh, 6,000 something. Um, okay. uh, you know, in some in some areas, we might know exactly 10 wolves. In other areas, it's more, you know, there might be close to 500. It's harder to right, you know, right. get an accurate number. But I say between six and 7,000, the largest population being... Uh, in the Western Great Lakes states of Minnesota, okay. Wisconsin, uh, Michigan as well. Um, in Alaska, uh, they guesstimate about seven to 11,000. So okay. more of a, a wide range. But um, considering that in the lower 48 was really just a small population yeah. in Minnesota, um, you know, whatever, 40 some odd years ago, um, it's, it's, it's still you know, it's progress. Um, sure. yeah. there, there are a lot of places where they could still go, but um, it's, it's good to see that, that they've come as far as they have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for your time. I know I've taken up a lot of it, but this has been incredible. Uh, oh, like I said, especially for the nerd in me <laughs> that has the, uh, you know, that still has a wolf t-shirt in my closet, I'm sure somewhere. Uh, so what can people do to help the Wolf Conservation Center? What can people do to help overall populations of wolves? And, you know, people are interested in the red wolves and Mexican gray wolves. How can they help them in particular? Um, you know, just like uh, wolves, um, be vocal. You know, don't give up. Keep howling. So whether you're <laughs> telling people how much you like wolves or teaching people about wolves or maybe diffusing some of the myths or untruths about yeah. wolves that 
people pick up from fairy tales or even in, you know, our culture today, whether it's like Wolves of Wall Street or, yeah. you know, lone wolf terrorism or what have you, um, you know, but just like really spread, spread your love for wolves. Um, let people know what wolves really are. Um, definitely, I would say uh, if there's any legislation um, uh, that's poised to um, harm wolves in any way, then to speak up. Um, you know, take action via, you know, different organizations, action alerts, or get involved in, you know, with your own um, representatives, um, just speak up, remember they work for you. Um, so we can, you know, make sure that whether it's Mexican wolves or red wolves or, or gray wolves living in the West or the Western Great Lakes, but that they become a permanent living, breathing part of our landscape for, uh, in perpetuity. Awesome. I love it. And the website is, uh, what is it? NYWolf.org. Uh, so that's where you can see all of the, uh, all the webcams. That's where you can see the videos, um, of each, you know, the ambassadors howling. Um, that's where you can get all the information. Uh, thank you again so much. This has been so great. Um, I really appreciate all the hard work you do, all the incredible work. And, um, you know, whether it's clearing up misconceptions about wolves <laughs> or just pushing forward legislation that helps them, uh, like you said, we don't want to talk about owning them, but we all do. I mean, they're, they're ours, we're theirs, you know, we're all in this yep. together. So thank you so much for leading the charge. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care. He takes a sip of wine from his water bottle.